Hey there, it's Tusker, and welcome to Beats and Risers, the podcast where I speak with electronic music producers to learn about their creative approach, workflow, and production techniques with the goal of inspiring and motivating you to make more and better music. This is episode three, and today my guest is Rip Kenny, a producer, DJ, sensei, and mentor at Producer Dojo. His first release, Awakening EP, was released in September 2018 on the Producer Dojo label and showcases his distinct guitar-infused heavy bass sound. He's also curated Producer Dojo's Cypher Number no. 6, which was called Get Outside. We'll talk about that later in the show. And he also contributed a remix to the Guard Remix EP by Daniel Simmons this past summer. In our conversation, we talk about how enjoying the outdoors inspires his music, how to process punchy, hard-hitting drums, what an arrangement needs to make for a great mixdown, and much more. So here it is, my conversation with Rip Kenny on Beats and Risers. Rip Kenny, thank you so much for joining me today on Beats and Risers. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for having me. So we'll start things off uh, how I typically start off every interview because I always enjoy hearing the answer to the question, but where where exactly did your love of music begin? Where did that all start out? So it's funny because if you would have asked me this question like in my teenage years or anything, you know, I wouldn't have really had like such a pinpointed answer, but since I went through and started digging for what like my real taste and musical influence derived from when I started, you know, working on this new project, um, I realized that there was kind of one moment that kind of completely changed my brain as far as music is concerned. And that's when I purchased Linkin Park's Hybrid Theory on CD. And basically, I just listened to that on repeat for however many it's years I listened to that album so much so that I uh, I don't know if the CD wore out or it broke or something but I remember I had to go to the store and buy the same CD again because it was just like such a cathartic listening experience for me that yeah so that's that's kind of like the main moment that really sparked a really deep appreciation for music and the kind of style that I, I really do feel like represents me today. That's cool. And you can hear that in a lot of your own music, maybe with a little more, a little more electronic, Yeah, but the guitars are still, you know, out there in the forefront. So there's definitely, um, you know, you can definitely kind of hear how that would be an influence in what you, what you create. Yeah, it's, they're definitely kind of one of three musical pillars, I would say that are like big influences on myself. So if I had to pick the three musical pillars that that have influenced me, it would probably be Linkin Park, Nero, and Zed's Dead. Like if I could get my sound somewhere in the middle of that triangle, I think it would be spot on for what I'm going for. So from Linkin Park to eventually producing music of your own, how did you decide to want to create your own music? So kind of flashing back to that original moment listening to Linkin Park. I mean, I think I was in like elementary school at that time, you know, like quite young. Um, And that started like a really deep, like appreciation and respect and passion for music. 
And that, that passion pretty much continued all the way from elementary school to middle school and high school throughout different genres and styles. But I never really understood or knew that I could have the tools at my disposal to make stuff like that until and I was always like real big into electronic music but like never quite had like the the deeper headier kind of um understanding of the scene until it was probably like freshman year of college I think that was the same year that like Skrillex came out with Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites so there was like dubstep and like Dead Mouse was just taking off and people like above and beyond so like really my musical taste was gravitating towards like heavier stuff, but also melodic stuff. And as I was listening to that kind of music, I just started to get so, so deep into it that, you know, eventually, like I'm sure most people can relate with on this show, you're like, huh, I'm pretty sure I could make something like that, that I would, that I would like for myself. That's, that's really where it sparked just having that, that inclination that, you know, this would, this would probably be pretty fun to try and make something like that. Walk me through the process of once you have this idea that you're going to create your own music, how you went about to starting that process. You use Ableton now. Did you start out using Ableton or how did you get how did you get going? I did start out using Ableton. Um, It was kind of funny, like the first like six months of 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 having Ableton since it was still kind of like a passing interest at the time as far as making music I was still very passionate about music I would like open it up try and like make some sort of beat or anything and like get really frustrated and just close it like there was a time where I didn't even know arrangement view existed I just knew about session view I didn't know that you could change <laughs> between the two and uh, like I didn't, I didn't have any sounds or anything. So I was like, "How do I do anything even remotely close to what these guys I'm listening to are doing?" And then my brother actually introduced me to Massive, and I was like, "Oh, okay. So this is how you actually get the sounds, and then you can like use all the other drum samples and stuff." So figuring out, <laughs> oh my god, it sounds so stupid now, like. Of course, you need some other program to make the sounds. But uh, yeah, once I figured out that plus arrangement view, I made like you, you like that first eight second loop of like a kick drum and some horrible screechy bass on top of it. And you're like, yes, I can do this. This is fun. Like, yes, I can totally fucking make this work. <laughs> so yeah, humble beginnings. But um, it was it, it was instantly very just like addicting it was you know it's like so self-gratifying to like create something out of nothing so for like all of my adolescent years and even through high school and into college you consume a lot of content right you you listen to music you play video games watch tv movies I also had a lot of outdoor passions that were a big focus in my life at the time but you know, that the outdoor passions kind of being a very cathartic experience and something that I really loved doing, there was nothing that was really feeding that itch for creation, right? So consuming all of this content, you can only play video games for so long before you kind of like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of bored with this. And I feel like the thing that was driving 
such like a intrinsic motivation to work on music is like having the inverse, right? Instead of consuming all this content that eventually kind of makes you feel like, eh, like you're wait, not like you're wasting your time, but that you're not really doing anything with it. Whereas making music was like completely the opposite. It was starting from nothing, making something, you could put it out into the world. And it was just such a such a gratifying process and like learning and getting better and being able to make cooler sounds and better tunes and stuff. It was just such a self-reinforcing loop that just it got me hooked like instantly. In that sense, you know, from what you were saying, you know, consuming content passively, you don't really you don't really own that experience, even though, you know, you might have friends who also consume the same thing um, and you might have a connection that way but really making music you have such an ownership over that process and it's like this is you know this is my experience this is what i put out onto a track and and made into sounds to listen to into melodies chords everything yeah 100 percent. and the the cool part about working with the daw and electronic music is that you don't have to wait for any other piece of the process, right? You can create a full song from scratch instantly. <laughs> Not instantly, but you have the ability to sit down and do it all by yourself, right? So you don't have to, there's no there's no hangups from idea to creation, actually. Well, there actually kind of are a lot of hangups. That's the biggest issue, right? Getting the idea from your head into the computer in a way that actually reflects what you're hearing in your head. But yeah, I, I really quite love that that about the whole process. And I feel like we've got to talk about how those those outdoor passions that you have feed your creativity and maybe go over, you know, what are what are some of the things that you enjoy doing uh, outdoors, some of the outdoor activities that have really fed into the music that you make? I pretty much have four sports that I couldn't live without. And that kind of sounds like a lot, but they're all so fun and different in their own way. So in the summer, mountain biking and dirt biking, the skill sets there complement each other pretty well. And they're they're both really fun in their own right. Uh, and then in winter, skiing and snowmobiling are kind of the two big ones there. Without getting too cheesy about it, I feel like my music is kind of like a representation of the experiences I have while doing those sports. I mean, it's not just that, but, you know, it is a really big part of kind of like the the ethos and the world that I feel like I'm creating when I'm making music, especially with the Rip Kenny project. I feel like this is finally like actually tapping into an expression of me on like such a deep level. And I think that that would be that you couldn't separate the two, right? Like the same parts of me that make it such an addiction to like make music are the same parts of me that like couldn't live without mountain biking and snowmobiling and dirt biking and that stuff. Right. So um, yeah, they're just, they're very, they're very highly intertwined. I always say that the, the most fun you can have as a human is snowmobiling on a powder day. So that kind of pure joy that you get when doing something like that, it, it, it couldn't not translate into your music. Right. I totally feel that. I think that's something that's really overlooked when it comes to writer's block is that a lot of songwriting comes from your own experiences. And if you if you're not 
getting out and and doing something interesting you don't have that that extra little frame of reference that could inspire your own creativity yeah no i i totally couldn't agree with you more it's so funny how not even really realizing it like if all i've done is like work and then you know stay home on the weekends or go out and party or something and all of that's very fun and well and good but uh, you know enough of that in a row like when you sit down to work on music it doesn't crystallize like you want it to and just like you were saying like it's not a conscious process to have that really influence and and benefit your amount of creativity but it really does it really does affect it it's funny my girlfriend will always say that after like snowmobiling or after dirt biking or something like she always says my eyes are clearer or like they're more blue or something and i think this is kind of like a funny representation of well maybe not funny but maybe a true representation of how getting out and like having those experiences it just it feeds the soul right it invigorates your mind and, and your ability to have those kind of breakthrough ideas and all that Let's talk about Producer Dojo, where yeah. you are a mentor. Mm -hmm. how, did you, how did you come across Producer Dojo and the class of 808? I had been kind of toying with the idea of getting some more rigorous, for lack of a better term, schooling in like the proper way to produce. Because I had been producing for quite a few years, I think between three and four, just kind of learning everything on my own and not really knowing what the right way to do things was. And man, I, I was definitely doing a lot of things the wrong way. I mean, you learn you learn how to work around things and how to get there, just general problem solving and watching YouTube tutorials. But I'd always felt like I was kind of missing something, like maybe missing that last 10%. So I had looked at a few options and all of them were like just prohibitively expensive and just didn't really seem like they were really focused on the individual. And I came across, I was familiar with Ill Gates's music, but I came across uh, a Facebook ad, I think, for the Breakthrough Workshop. I believe it was called the Breakthrough, but the, the workshop he was giving at the time instantly signed up because, I mean, it was a free workshop. Why not? And it, it was a potential to find exactly what I was looking for sat through the whole thing was just like jaw to the floor like literally felt like he was talking directly to me signed up like that night because i just knew it was a perfect fit got into the class of 808 cruised through all the content pretty quickly because i was just so motivated to learn and it was one of the tracks that i sent ill gates off i think it was the hear me ep that i was doing for my previous project but he, he saw some potential in that and, and then we kind of started working towards, you know, getting to that mentor level. And after a lot of content training, um, yeah, that's that's where we ended up where we are now. And I just, I absolutely love teaching. It's such a fun process and I love getting down into the nitty gritty technical stuff and details. So that's, that's kind of how the, the story started with the class of 808 at least. And in your time at Producer Dojo, you curated one of the ciphers. So it was, I believe, cipher number six, Get Outside. Tell us about curating that mixtape and, and how you put the tracks together to really create uh, a story. So um, 
kind of touching on like the exact concept that we were just discussing, like the intertwined nature of getting outside and doing these activities and the music that you create. I was, you know, kind of toying with the idea of creating an adventure for the cipher that, you know, everyone took pieces of these outdoor activities and put them into a song and then we could kind of sequence them in a logical progression and kind of tell a story, right? As the pieces were kind of coming together of the actual individual songs, all of which kind of everyone took a few or at least one of these samples that I got from, I think it was like freesounds.org or something. It was all just like snowmobiling, dirt biking, mountain biking, you know, rock climbing, like rocks falling, you know, sounds of people like walking through the woods, like hiking, kayaking, waterfalls, all that kind of stuff. Like get outside is the, is the theme, right? So just anything outdoors, I took all the samples I could find, put them in one big folder, and then everyone kind of took from there and created a, a moment and a, a piece of that story, right? Like something, something happening in that adventure. And, and everyone took that piece and then explained what part of the story they were representing with their track. And so as people were kind of putting together their tracks and sending them to me, and I was kind of starting to piece together how this could work, I came up with the idea that, you know, I could actually write like a story in words and post it as like SoundCloud comments, like along the whole timeline to kind of emphasize the adventure and kind of give people a, a greater imagery in their head for like the, the adventure. And so that was just kind of like a, a random thing that came apart from just the inspiration that everyone's like amazing tracks they were sending gave me. And so that story element ended up working amazingly with Professor Lightwave's video that he did for the whole thing. And uh, yeah, so that's really the story of how it came together. I was just, I was really blown away by the quality of everyone's tracks that they put together, the immense talent that came out of the dojo for that one and how everyone like so perfectly encapsulated like a moment and, and really brought the story to life with each every person's track. So yeah, it was a really fun one to do, no doubt. Last year, you released your EP Awakening on the Producer Dojo label. I, I think on your SoundCloud page, you describe your music as the soundtrack to your adventure, and you could, that really shines through with each of the four tracks. Tell us a little bit about the process of how the EP came together. It was roughly like a year and a half of me trying to figure out what like the most true to myself sound would be. Um, and so there were a lot of tracks along the way trying to come up with like a debut EP that would from the get go kind of represent what I was trying to get at. So it was a long process of many, many tracks that will never see the light of day to kind of get to that point. But over that year and a half, I took basically my four favorites and whittled them down and really got super deep into the mix and making sure that everything was super tight and really, you know, represented the qualities that I wanted to kind of put forth as that kind of debut. Here's what my sound is, EP. I think it was the second track that I made along that process, the 13th track, the 30th, and the 32nd. So uh, 32 tracks to get to four. <laughs> 
That's amazing. Those tracks are all so impactful and they all kind of encapsulate their own sort of specific moment. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about production. And I'll kind of start with one one thing that really stands out to me from the tracks from the EP is the drums and just how punchy and impactful they are. What would you say is the one of the most or some of the most key things that a producer needs to be mindful of to have really hard hitting drums? Really the number one end all be all transients. You 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 have to make sure that they're nice, sharp, punchy, that you didn't compress the drum so much that the transient doesn't still have that nice punch. It was really one of the weekly downloads, actually, that went over a technique that Ill Gates was showing in the weekly download that was essentially make an audio track and resample whatever drum that you are manipulating I think he was using a compressor at the time to kind of get a better sense for what the waveform is actually doing when you're manipulating it with these effects, right? So if you throw a compressor on your drum and you crank the settings or whatever, and you think you made it sound better, you might've actually kind of destroyed the transient or you, you might've like made the transient really loud, but then you squished the body down to almost nothing. And so being able to actually get a visual cue for what that looks like and what you're doing, that was really a game changer as far as drum processing for sure. So basically in that process, make new audio track and and render out your processing on that drum until it looks like as much of a play button as you can. So like the punchiest drum, as Ill Gates would tell you, is uh, is you know basically from zero to a hundred percent volume, and then down at like a forty five degree angle back down to zero. So I've kind of uh, adopted that philosophy when processing my drums nowadays, trying to get as close to that as possible. When you sit down at Ableton, what would be the first thing you'd typically do when you're starting a new track? What would be sort of the first component of the song that you'd work on? Almost always, I'll start with chords. Um, try to write some chords that are are really going to tell a story, and then from there, kind of the rest of the parts of the track will all kind of materialize as they will, right? So I'll spend like an hour and a half to two hours writing just like a big long chord progression that's that's really nailing exactly the emotion and the story that I want to tell. And then that chord progression can go from there and really dictate where the rest of the track is going to go. So, right. So from there, I'll take like the baseline of the chords and, and, you know, spend 15 minutes to an hour, like resampling a bunch of sounds from that baseline. So then I have kind of a, not only like a bunch of new fresh sounds to kind of piece together and play with but like sounds that are moving through the melodic structure of the story those chords are telling and i found that in doing that you get a lot of these little unexpected kind of shifts and swings between notes that kind of tie together that that story a lot better i think probably the best example would be like ultraviolet from the ep where you can hear 
there's the the main baseline that comes in like with the vocal there was a a section of that baseline where like the notes overlap but i didn't have it on portamento so it didn't it didn't nicely glide between them and it creates these little glitchy moments that transition between the notes of the bass line but they they have the harmonics of the two notes in that glitch right so it just even though it's kind of like this weird like scratchy transition between them it still feels like it fits really well and so I, you kind of get just stuff like that you know moments that you didn't necessarily intend on creating but that work really well with the rest of the kind of the structure of the track and and what you're trying to do with it. Describe for me your workflow and the stages of production that you'd take a song through from sort of creating the arrangement to the finished product. Like I said, I start with chords and then I'll go to the bass line, creating some sounds and then just take a basic kick snare loop and get the general sense of like the what the drop is going to look like. And then from there kind of figure out like how the chords and that drop are going to work like where where they should go and kind of the transition between them so usually i'll end up with a a chord section a bridge slash build up and then a drop and then from there it's really just kind of experimenting with different pieces of the arrangement that will fit with those and also kind of help emphasize whatever emotion the chords are are trying to tell you and it's just it's a lot of experimentation it's a lot of you know trying just the baseline in this next section or just the chords with a vocal or whatever and and just doing a lot of arrangement mix and match to see what i feel like fits the best moving forward and then by the time i've kind of figured out a rough structure so i'll kind of just make markers at the top and like experiment with different places where different things could happen. And once I've finally got the, like the meat of the arrangement down, then I'll, I'll finish filling out all the other little bits and pieces, you know, the background pads, like any glitchy effects, or there's always one part of the process that just absolutely kills me. And it's figuring out what sound can go in the background of the drop you know, something that's like really reverbed out that kind of gives you that sense of space, but that doesn't distract from the power of like the main bass riff that you're going for. Sort of like a subtle atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. For instance, in like the Ultraviolet song, the line where the singer says people, like I just, I took that one word and just like, you know, EQ'd out a lot of the highs and the lows and just really reverbed it out. And it's just like repeating in the background. But it like creates this kind of consistent atmosphere that helps kind of bring that sense of space, right? Because if it's all just dry and in the front, like it's really loud and, and big, but it just kind of feels one dimensional. And it's like looking at a really long wall from the end. Like you don't really get a sense of what's going on there. You're just seeing like a two-dimensional line, right? So like having the reference of the back of the mix kind of gives you a better sense of like how close the front is, if that makes any sense. But finding the right element to play that role is just such a... I pull my hair out on that every time because I always leave it to the end because it's not... To the in the forefront of my creative process when I'm trying to like get all this stuff down, 
but then it's always just such a, a fight to find something that both fits and doesn't take away from what I already have. It's true what you were referencing about, you know, having sounds at different places in the mix to kind of create that sonic depth, because that's another element that you can play with in terms of creating that sense of movement. Yeah, totally. It's it's one of the things that I've definitely, as I've felt like my music has become more of a high caliber, it's something that I really, I really focus on a lot kind of finding what particular space these elements should operate in and then kind of creatively breaking that to, you know, bring attention to things. So maybe this might relate to what we were just talking about, but when you find yourself losing focus in the production process or find yourself getting stuck on one thing that you can't really quite figure out, what do you do to, to bring that focus back and to get back on task? To be honest, I am terrible at this. Like (laughs) the way that my brain works, it's like, no, you need to figure this out. You don't get to do anything else until this is done, especially like when I've set aside like an entire Saturday to work on music. And I know that until the point where I go to bed, which, you know, could be 11, it could be four in the morning if, if I'm like still rolling on the track that whole day is set aside for music, right? So like these elements need to get figured out. And I have such a hard time removing myself from that situation and like saying, okay, this is not working, try something else. My advice is do as I say, not as I do, but just get up, take 15 minutes to do something else, listen to other music that's not the song that you're working on because if you if you just get up and replay the loop in your head like that's not going to help you either you need to allow your subconscious to work on that song by not consciously focusing on it so get up take a walk you know i really do anything else for 15 minutes i think the key really is though don't do anything that's going to like kind of suck you into another another world right so like if i sat down and like started watching a movie or something I feel like that would kind of take you in a direction that's that's too far away from the plot. You want to remove yourself just enough that you can kind of get your brain unstuck, get your brain out of the mud, and then return back to working on music. Recognizing when it's time to snap out of it, essentially. Because sometimes, yeah, like you, you know going in that you want the process to keep moving along. But then, you know, there might be some element. And even if you think, all I want is for something to be in there that's good enough, but you don't find that good enough. You know, I think that's really important. What you mentioned is just knowing when it's time to maybe just walk away for 10, 15 minutes and give yourself a little bit of space to, you know, that you're not listening to the same loop over and over again. It could come faster to you the next time you sit down. It may not, but at least those 15 minutes aren't becoming 45 minutes to an hour and so on. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like the other thing that's really important to keep in mind is like, if you're trying to come up, so say you came up with the perfect chords and the perfect baseline, and you're like, oh my God, these things are working so well. I'm so excited about the direction this is going. And then your brain gets in that, oh, okay, so these things are already so good. The next thing that you put in here has to be the same caliber and has to be perfect as well. 
and then you get stuck in this like impenetrable creative wall of okay what is the next perfect thing i could put in here like you don't think about that like literally but your your brain kind of starts to do that to you and it's so easy just to like sit there and listen to the loop and think about like okay where does this need to go rather than just trying a bunch more stuff cuz you're not going to the the beauty of where you started was there was nothing else that it had to fit into right your drop could stand by itself with no other reference and you would enjoy it right but now everything else kind of has to work with the story that that drop is already kind of starting or maybe it's the climax of your story right so like what is the starting place that makes sense with that and so it creates kind of a a framework that you have to work within and if you get stuck in thinking like okay i have to get the perfect thing here you're never going to get there and this is another thing that i like have to constantly remind myself you're not going to come up with the perfect thing by listening to the loop and staring at the screen you're going to come up with that thing by just trying new weird different anything anything as long as you're just creating more ideas. I mean, you can delete out every other part that you worked on for four hours if by the end of that fourth hour you're actually creating ideas and came to one that works perfectly. It's kind of like how Ill Gates described in the production process when he's going through the breakthrough and, and talking about, you know, there there needs to be a point where you're just saying yes to everything. And just adding, you know, as as many different things. And if you think of a technique and you think that it may not fit that genre of song, still do it and and see where it leads you because it's those, you know, those sort of happy accidents that can lead to a really interesting creative sound. And who doesn't want their music to sound interesting and like themselves? And how else are you going to get there if you don't try those things? Yeah, exactly. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Rip Kenny, and if you are, I'd really appreciate if you would leave a written review for Beats and Risers on Apple Podcasts. I'd really love to help inspire more producers and songwriters through this podcast, and reviews on Apple Podcasts are a really great way, especially with this podcast being new, to help build some momentum for the show. I've seen us get on the outer edges of the charts for uh, for music interviews in the United States and Australia, and I'd really like for Beats and Risers to climb those charts. So if you're enjoying the show, please take a minute, head on over to Apple Podcasts, search for Beats and Risers, and leave a review. Thanks so much, everyone, and now back to the conversation with Rip Kenny. Do you have an unorthodox habit in your production workflow or an unorthodox technique, something unusual that is part of your typical production workflow or how you create tracks? I think (laughs) I probably end up over distorting everything and then trying to work backwards into like, okay, how can I make this actually work? Let's see, I I guess along with that is I use a lot of like guitar distortions, um, like guitar amps on a lot of both bass processing and synth processing. And I think that those are, I mean, I'm I'm not the first person to do that, but uh, I do feel like 
they have such a tendency of making everything kind of scratchy and shitty. You have to mess with it for a long time to get it where you want it. But um, I do think that that's probably another thing that's a little bit different that probably contributes to my sound is just having those kind of more guitar-centric tones, even if it's not a guitar as an instrument that's playing. And it really shines through in in your music. Those guitars sound loud, and they have just the right element of distortion. So it's cool. It's an interesting idea, you know, that you'll take that distortion and then kind of dial it down just to where it hits that spot where it's like, okay, this is the distortion that will give this the sound some some texture and make it interesting. Exactly. I think the best kind of uh example of that would be in the the guard remix i did for daniel simmons like that entire bass line is ran heavily through guitar amps it was so scratchy like i did the resampling process through like a really heavy guitar amp so i like couldn't go backwards which was really probably not very smart because in the end it created a lot of kind of difficult mix challenges but I think through that, it created a lot of like really interesting tones and, and resonances that contributed to like why it sounds the way it does. For instance, that was it was so heavily processed that I had to cut out like almost all of like the 3K, like the 2 to 4K range was dipped so heavily. And then like basically 6K to 8K was like a real hard roll off into literally nothing in the high end. And because of that since it was so scratchy i had to add like this weird textural layer that i had to kind of neatly weave in the fit with the bases just out of pure necessity to put something back in those frequency ranges after creating something that was completely unusable by itself well the result sounded fantastic so even though there might have been some some hiccups in the process i would say it was definitely worth it yeah, that one that one took forever, but I am definitely uh, I, I enjoy that one for sure. So the producer dojo and class of eight oh eight in particular, one of the core ideas of the dojo is make lots of music very quickly, and that's how you get better. And I'm wondering if you can tell me about a time where you created a track under some kind of constraint, be it for one of the mixtapes or just a a uh, constraint that you gave yourself as a challenge and tell us what that track was and how it turned out. The, uh, the organic mixtape was, was such a beautiful constraint because it's, it's so simple, right? Like you can't use any synths. You can only use samples, contact libraries, that kind of thing. Stuff that starts with a very organic nature. And it's hard to create bass music that's got like gnarly sounds from that starting place so um that framework was really a a great um challenge to kind of get you out of your comfort zone as far as figuring out different ways to create those kind of gnarlier textures with sounds that started life as something very mundane right so i think like the main sound that i used in that cypher track was like some very basic sounding wood block pluck and just like a bunch of downsampling, really heavy distortion grain modulation time stretching just totally mangling the sound got like something that actually sounded like a a, a 
space that came from a synth or something, right? So um, I think that 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 was probably uh, one of my one of my favorite ciphers for sure, and definitely a, a great interesting challenge. What's been the best investment that you've made? It could be uh, an item or an experience in terms of your own creative success. That's a great question. I mean, I guess not to be too cheesy on the concept of of the outdoor activities leading into the music. But again, I, d- I just don't think you can separate the two. So I would have to say when I got my first job out of college, like one of the first things I went and bought was like a, a new dirt bike and a new snowmobile. <laughs> but it was right around the time that I was beginning to work on the Rip Kenny project too. So, you know, those are pretty expensive items to link into the musical sphere. But I would have to say that those those two purchases probably in in the greater sense contributed to what I do now more than anything. What are the elements that you would say make up a great mix down? It's funny how as you get more advanced in the mixing process and understanding really what's going on under the hood, how like the things that you focus on change. It's so funny how that the best sounding mixes you will ever do take the least time. And it's so counterintuitive because you're like, wait, I don't feel like I've actually really worked that hard to get this sounding good. So you like kind of backtrack, like, what did I miss along the way? And what you realize in like having those experiences is that the reason your mix sounded good is because you picked elements that work well with each other and in a sequence that allows for each element to have its own space. So that is like the most foundational starting point for your mix. Don't put three bass lines in the same register. Don't layer a bunch of chords in the same register. Take your pluck, move it up an octave, like take your bass line, move it down an octave, like figure out like where everything like actually wants to sit naturally without reaching for any of the tools that you have in your DAW and then go from there. Amateur you is like, Everyone needs to hear all of these parts because I worked really hard on all of them. But generally, that doesn't make a good song at all. You have to understand that like, you have to tier the importance of these elements and that surprisingly, even those elements that you took a long time on and that you really, really like and want to shine, if you turn them way down to support the rest of the things that matter maybe a little bit more in that mix it's still serving a purpose that is contributing to that main, like that main sound that you're going for, right? So if it is the right element, you can turn it way down and it will still accomplish that, that desired goal for your mix. There's kind of that idea that, oh, everything has to be loud, but you know, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, how different elements can take turns in the mix and you can you can still have it all but just everything needs to have its own its own space and its own timing some other kind of accoutrements to a a great mix that i would say are like i mentioned with drums transients like dead giveaway that you're more on the amateur side is that you don't have like crisp transients that punch through the mix right so you got to make sure your side chains are really tight 
and that your transients are crisp and clear. And, you know, maybe that involves adding a, a transient shaper to boost the attack. Maybe that means layering your kick with like a hat sample or something to kind of give it a, a more precise high end. That's really, I would say, the two most important things, at least that I'm focusing on right now, you know, as I get better in my change. So. At the end of our interview together is a segment that I call the 808 or eight answers on eight questions where I'm asking each guest the same set of eight questions. So uh, start with question one. What book has had the most profound impact on your music production or your creativity? I would have to say The War of Art. That book so clearly explains the kind of the, the pitfalls to creativity are really just getting started. And it's so true, like, and, and still something that I struggle with, you know, you get home from work and like, sometimes the last thing you want to do is, well, I wouldn't say it's the last thing you want to do is work on music. Like you, you have the desire to work on music, but like starting to work on it just feels like such an uphill battle. And like the book, The War of Art, just so cleanly describes that feeling and how the most important part is that you just push past that initial resistance is like, you know, what they call it. If you've heard that term before, if you can push past that initial resistance, just do one thing like you you will you'll get into that rhythm very quickly. Um, So that was that was really quite powerful to understand. Yeah, it it goes back to just showing up um the importance of just deciding that you're that you're going to do it and just do it yeah i love that book and that's you know that's one that i revisit often yeah i've definitely i've read that one a couple times and i I probably need to read it again because i'm currently struggling with some resistance so uh yeah great book question two if you had to give a ted talk on anything but it couldn't be related to music what would it be about and what would we learn how snowmobiling is the most fun that you can have as a human. And I know that it's not related to music, but the but the real punchline at the end would probably be, and this is why it will make your music better. Okay, so give us one of the key points from what a, a hypothetical presentation on how snowmobiling might make your music better might be. Imagine the feeling of like floating weightless on air. And you can move forwards, backwards, any direction, except you have an engine that has a ton of power and you can go up and you can go down and you can go wherever you want. You can create your own adventure, right? That is like the very fundamental core of snowmobiling. Like you can, on a powder day on your snowmobile, you can have that consistent feeling of just like, pure weightlessness combined with like the excitement of actually having some power to take you all these places and it's such a simultaneously freeing and exciting thing to do yeah (laughs) not to get too nerdy about it but it is just that fun i think the way you describe it i can see some parallels in uh, how you can capture those emotions when you when you create a song too question three what is your favorite key and tempo to produce in? Ooh, okay. So if I was to write music in any key in perpetuity, it is kind of the bane of my existence that my ear always goes to C sharp minor because it's not a good key for bass music. It's just not. 
probably stems a lot from the Linkin Park influence. I think they wrote a ton of stuff in C sharp minor, but that's just kind of where my ear gravitates to. But then I end up usually transposing all of that stuff up to like D sharp or E if I can get away with it and it doesn't ruin the tone of what I'm going for. But uh, BPM, I've been writing a lot of stuff at 80 lately um, that I've really quite enjoyed. You can just put a lot of groove into 80 BPM stuff. So I would I would probably say, yeah, 80, at least today. <laughs> Question four. If you could collaborate with anyone that you haven't already worked with, who would you collaborate with and why? It would probably, I mean... Going back to the three pillars of musical influence, it'd probably be since we're collabing, it would make more sense to do something electronic, right? So either Nero or Zed's Dead. I feel like Zed's Dead would be more fun to collab with. I feel like Nero are so precise that it might be a little bit more difficult to do that. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go Zed's Dead for those reasons. Question five. If you could only use two VST instruments and three VST effects as the basis of a track, what would you end up choosing and why? It's super cliche, but Serum has to be one of the VSTs. I still use that as probably the main workhorse in my tracks. And there's just so, the audio quality is so good and the workflow is so smooth that even if you're post-processing a bunch of stuff after it to make it not sound like Serum, like that starting place is just so much easier to work with. So I'm going to choose that as one of them. And since the first one was a synth, I probably want something more organic. So I'm going to go like Contact because you, I mean, that's kind of cheating because you can throw a bunch of libraries in there, but we'll say Contact as a gateway to organic stuff like violins or pianos or stuff like that to complement the synth now uh, i have to have some sort of guitar amp so i'm gonna go with this new guitar amp that i just recently found it's from ik multimedia i think it's called bx underscore rock rack it is so good sounding like just like like straight stock preset clicking through in there is just so satisfying um so i'm gonna go with that one i gotta have a pro caliber limiter sorry ableton but your limiter doesn't quite cut it um saturator is probably better for limiting than the actual limiter itself pro tip but uh i'd probably go uh invisible limiter by aom um that thing sounds great and then let's see what else I have to have something for transients. So I'm going to go Smack Attack by Waves Audio. It's this just basic transient processor that you can choose like the style and the attack time on both the transient attack and the sustain. It was like this free add-on plugin I got when I bought some Black Friday stuff. And it's been it's become kind of the workhorse of my transient processing, which as I mentioned before, super important. So yeah, those those would be it. How do you find that um, that something like Smack Attack compares to, um, say, like Ableton's Drum Bus? Yeah, so Ableton's Drum Bus definitely is the first step in Ableton actually having real dedicated transient processing. I mean, you can kind of do the same thing by setting a compressor to like 
10 milliseconds between the attack and release and then just cranking it you can kind of do a similar thing but the drum bus is the first stab at transient processing but even still you don't have the fine control of setting how long of a piece of that transient you want to manipulate and um, also kind of the character of it is it like really short or does it kind of like like swing into it just ever so slightly or a little bit longer and so it just has it just has more fine control although um, ableton's drum bus transient knob does work quite well question six how do you know when you need to finish a song versus when it's time to throw in the towel I know I need to finish a song when at some point in the writing process, doesn't matter if it was like the first time I played the drop back or maybe like some part towards the end of the process where like things came together. But at some point, there was a moment that like made you want to stand out of your chair in excitement, just the general excitement around the creative process and like how how it's going if a track is really special i feel there will be at least one moment like that and if i if if looking back i never had that then it's probably not a caliber maybe it's b plus so um in the spirit of keeping only a caliber stuff that's that's kind of my my gateway And to some degree, I guess there'd be some momentum that you wouldn't want to lose if you have that moment, right? Totally. Um, That's not to say that you wouldn't have that moment, try to add the next thing and instantly get stuck. (laughs) But uh, that moment alone, the fact that it happened is enough to push you through the hours and hours of the mixed stages and whatnot to get you to the end. Question seven. In the past six months... What have you purchased for $100 or less that has had the greatest impact on your music production? Man, I've really gotten to a point where I haven't bought any gear in forever. Um, You know what? I'm going to say I'm going to say Smack Attack because that was like a I think it's like $30 or something. It's it's a really quite a cheap plug in, but it was just like a little add on. So I'm going to say, yeah, Smack Attack. And question eight, if you could go back in time to when you were in your first six months of producing music, what would you go back in time to tell yourself knowing what you know now? Uh, I think it would be twofold. I think it would be stop wasting so much time trying to send your music to labels and other outlets. You're not there yet. (laughs) I know you're excited and this is very fun, but you're wasting other people's time. Uh, as, as nicely as I could put that because you don't want to, you don't want to dampen the vibe, but yeah, you, you start sending stuff to people way too early in the, in, in the beginning. Cause you're just excited about it. Right. Um, the other thing more on the creative side is less is more. Um, I, I had a serial habit of adding way too much in like the first three years that I was producing and, uh, I wish someone would have told me that uh, to create a great song, you have to delete good parts. So before we go, two final questions. First one, what's one thing that you want to say to, uh, to anyone listening to this podcast before we sign off? There's going to be a ton of new music, so keep your eye out for that. 
I'm actually, I mean, side note from this, but I'm going to be taking a, a large chunk of my time. I'm actually going to be doing music full time to, to work on music. So you'll see a lot more from me. And as far as anything else, just get outside, you know, go enjoy, go enjoy the outdoors and, and your music will be better for it. Congratulations on the move to music full time, and we'll all be looking forward to uh, to hearing some of the new stuff. Yeah, I I couldn't be more excited about that, to be honest. <laughs> awesome. Last but not least, uh, where can people find you and your music online, or if they want to learn from you at Producer Dojo, how can they uh, how can they reach out? Yeah, um, so you can sign up for lessons with me through the class of eight oh eight for mentoring. I would love to show you everything I know. Um, as far as where you can find me online, all of the socials at Rip Kenny Music, probably Instagram would be the most interesting place to follow me. That's where I kind of post a lot of videos and photos from all the adventures outdoors. Um, so yeah, that would be the preferred platform to reach out. Awesome. Well, Rip Kenny, thank you so much for joining me today and speaking with me about uh, about your process and uh, about your your music production. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. You know, it's it's not every day you get to go deep into the details of this stuff. So, yeah, definitely, definitely a fun time kind of walking through all these different facets of what makes me me. Thank you again so much to Rip Kenny for speaking with me today. You can find him on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at Rip Kenny Music. That's R-I-P Kenny Music. If you'd like to book a session and learn from Rip Kenny, you can schedule lessons with him through Producer Dojo, and the link there is producerdojo.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to Beats and Risers over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Links to everything we've talked about in this episode, from plugins to producers we've mentioned, can be found in the show notes, which you can find over at beatsandrisers.com. My name is Tusker, I've been your host and the producer of Beats and Risers, and if you'd like to get the latest updates from me and about the Beats and Risers podcast, subscribe to the Tusk List. You can find the link at my website, tusker.com, that is T-V-S-K-E-R.com, and also at beatsandrisers.com, it's linked on the top menu bar there. You can also follow me on social media at Tusker on Twitter, that's T-V-S-K-E-R once again, and at Tusker Music on Instagram. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's podcast as well. What was your biggest takeaway from my conversation with Rip Kenny? Send me an email, podcast at beatsandrisers.com, or you can follow Beats and Risers on social media at Beats and Risers on Twitter and Instagram. Let me know. I'd love to hear your feedback. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Beats and Risers. And thank you so much to everyone who has sent some feedback about the first couple of episodes. I'm really glad you're enjoying the podcast, and I can't wait to bring you more awesome interviews with awesome producers. Until next time, be kind to one another, go out there, and make more music. <laughs>